to understand the tantrika phase of the shaiva mantra shastra we need to step back a little and understand the background in which it arose the vaidika religion as we discussed earlier had several distinctive features and some of these continue into the tantrika period so it is more a difference between two shades of a color rather than two very distinct colors in themselves so to understand this we have to look at three distinct concepts sectarianism the emergence of new modes of worship and finally what may be called the hallmarks of a new type of mantra language sectarianism is something which most hindus today instinctively understand though most of us here are not sectarian in the sense that we are smarta but even amidst us smartas you see a certain degree of sectarian tendencies there will be people amidst you all who may consider vishnu as your primary deity or some others may consider shiva as your primary deity now this aspect of sectarianism existed alongside the vaidika religion why do i say this because when we look at the indo european religion as a whole we do see elements of sectarianism elsewhere in the indo european world for example in the germanic world you can see groups or sects which were particularly devoted to thor some other groups which were particularly devoted to odin and yet others which were probably devoted to ullur we see some hints of a similar phenomenon in greece too but perhaps closer to us in the larger indo-iranian realm the first very aggressive form of sectarianism can be seen as the privileging of the varuna class deity ahura mazda in the zoroastrian stream of the iranian religion now in the indian side of things similar phenomena started emerging although much less aggressively in the late vaidika period the beginnings of it or the roots of it we as i suggested probably go back to the proto indo european period so they were always there alongside what you may call the mainstream vaidika religion now some people have taken the view that the vaidika religion itself must be seen as a sect that is it is the indra sectarianism however i differ from this view and i think it's actually wrong because what you may consider the indra class centric religion is ancestral to all indo europeans that's how it was formulated and the vaidika religion while indra has a special place the other deities are very much there and it's not like they are displaced or indra is promoted at their expense what we see is that in the vaidika religion while there is a predominance if you just count the number of mantras of indra the other deities are not being demoted or placed below indra in an explicit fashion whereas this tendency dominates what you may call typical sectarianism and this type of sectarianism emerged first in the vaidika milieu in the late brahmana period where we see the rise of the god prajapati prajapati he is hardly mentioned in the first nine mandalas of the rigveda he first emerges in what are clearly a later layer of suktas in the 10th mandala but by the time of this brahmana period the late brahmana period he was clearly the primary deity of a stream of vaidika thinking so in a sense you may say that sectarian prajapatya system emerged within the vaidika tradition uh, we do see that there are elements alongside the sectarian prajapatya system of the older indra system it did not go away in many cases you can see them occurring side by side 
But along with the Prajapatiya system, we also see the rise of two other deities, Rudra and Vishnu. And finally, in the very late layers of the Vaidika religion, the latest layers of the Vaidika religion, we observe the emergence of a new deity, Kumara. In this ancient spectrum of sectarianism, we may include a set of four deities along with the older Indra system which is centered on Indra. In the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, the core of, of these two texts, you see already this five deity dominance in place. That is, there are five deities who are acknowledged as great deities in these texts. They are the old deity of the Indra system, Indra, Prajapati of the Prajapatiya system, Vishnu, Rudra and Skanda. This last deity, Skanda, who is also known as Kumara or Kartikeya, has today in large part faded in many parts of India, though a folk form of his uh, tradition does, or of his sect, does persist quite strongly in uh, the southern part of the country or in the Tamil country. In the rest of India, we still see a strong survival of the Shaiva and the Vaishnava traditions. The Prajapatiya tradition, because it threw its weight with the Vaidika, the older Vaidika tradition, in a sense it reconfigured the ancestral Indo-European religion, the Indra religion, uh, by placing Prajapati at the center of it. So the Prajapatiya sect as a sect has become extinct, but you may say that the Mimamsakas, or at least a flavor of Mimamsakas, might be the modern inheritors of the Prajapatiya tradition. Of course, Mimamsakas are a very rare breed in themselves today. So, in a sense, you may say even the Prajapatiya system has uh, become extinct. But there was one further sectarian tendency, which also has its roots very deep in the Indo-European tradition, which is that of the transfunctional goddess. Now, why do I call her the transfunctional goddess? In the old Indo-European system, the male gods typically had certain functional domains, the classes which I have mentioned to you all in passing before. The Indra class, which includes Indra, Parjanya, Dyaus, and in most other Indo-European traditions, you may just see one or the other, but we preserve all three of this class. Then the Aditya class, which includes most prominently Mitra and Varuna, and also Bhaga, Aryaman, who are somewhat less known. And the Solar class, which is somewhat distinct from the Aditya class, which is dominated by Savita and Pushan. Then you have the Ashwin class, where you have the Ashwins. And finally, you have uh, the Rudra class, which has Rudra and related deities. Now, in the traditional Vaidika nomenclature of deities, usually three classes were explicitly named, which were the Adityas, which subsumed the core Aditya class, the solar group and Indra and Vishnu and uh, the Rudra class, the Rudras and the Vasus which included Agni, Vayu and others in their midst. So this triad, Aditya, Rudra, Vasu, this triple class was very well known in the Vaidika religion and additionally there were the Ashwins. So there are these functionalities or classes in which the male deities belong. They are called functions because they represent a certain function of nature. The transfunctional goddess is so called because in a sense she differs from the, the female counterparts of the deities of each of these classes. In that she transcends all the classes or she has functions belonging to all the classes. And this is very clearly illustrated in uh, the case of Saraswati, who is the transfunctional goddess in the Veda, having a deep provenance in the ancestral 
transfunctional goddess. So Saraswati can be seen as a warrior deity, which she is often invoked as in the Rig Veda. She is a water cycle deity, and she is also the deity of speech and intelligence. So multiple functionalities are encompassed by her. So this transfunctional goddess who also had resonance in all likelihood with other non-Indo-European Vestatian traditions of the worship of powerful goddesses, especially in the Semitic world. So with that resonance, we saw the emergence of uh, a sect, which was the sect of the transfunctional goddess. So in essence, today we have the Shaiva sect, the Vaishnava sect, the transfunctional goddess sect, the Kaumara sect centered on Kumara, somewhat muted in most parts of the country. And much later there arose a sect which was centered around the other son of Rudra, a much later emergent deity, Vinayaka, which is the Ganapatya sect. So this phenomenon of sectarianism, we see its traces right or we can infer it being there right from the early days of the Indo-European world but as the Indo-Europeans moved out of their ancestral homeland in the region between the Caspian and the Black Seas and then settled in various other parts of Eurasia we find particular sectarian tendencies developing independently in each of the groups though they may have had their roots within ancestral traditions. In particular, the sects centered around the Shaiva and the Vaishnava class of deities seem to be very ancient because in the old Germanic world you do see evidence for uh, the Odinic sects which can be compared to the Shaiva sects and the Vidaric sects which were comparable to the Vaishnava sects. And uh, in the Greek world, you see Apollo and the sectarian worship of Apollo in certain centers, especially in the oracular centers, which can again be compared to the Shaiva sect. In the much later period of the syncretic development of the Greek religion, in the Neoplatonic phase, we see the emergence of equivalence of the Shakta sect or that of the transfunctional goddess. So this phenomenon of sectarianism which privileges one deity of the pantheon above the rest uh, had a very important part to play in the development of the tantrika system. Because what we see is that there was the development of a new class of texts distinct from the old religious corpus which was bundled into the Samhitas of the Veda. So this new corpus of texts which developed were centered around these sectarian deities. We don't see the rise of sects around Indra in the later period. That's why I argue that the old Indra system should not be actually seen as a sect, but the ancestral condition where Indra simply has, or the Indra class of deities simply have a special position. Now, the next element which we need to understand is the development of new modes of worship. Now, the Vaidika religion in its essence had what you may see as fire worship or using the fire as a medium of worship. In addition to this fire worship, there was a certain detour which was performed in a very specific class of rituals, which were known as the Shauta rituals, which was the Soma ritual. There might have been much earlier, simpler forms of the Soma ritual, but by the time it was formalized, what we see is the Shauta form Soma ritual. The Soma ritual is characterized by the offering of Soma to several Vaidika deities, in chief part to Indra and the Ashwins. Then 
We also have offering of other material into the fire. This may be done within the Shrauta context or within household rituals, which are known as Grihya rituals. And there are a further class of rituals which were, in a sense, Grihya rituals, but uh, they were not essential or they were not uh, obligatory Grihya rituals, but those rituals which you may do in your Grihya fire, the, that is the single fire rather than the three fires or the triple fire of the Shrauta system. So you may do it in your household fire for uh, special purposes and these were known as the Vidhana rituals. So the Rig Vidhana, for example, a collection of rituals based on particular mantras from the Rig Veda is one example of these Vidhana rituals. Likewise, there are Yajur Vidhanas, Sama Vidhanas and Atharva Vidhanas too, which collect mantras from the remaining three Samhitas and use them in these household rituals. And they may be for all kinds of purposes, usually those which people encounter in their daily life, such as uh, overcoming enemies, freedom from disease, and the like. So, these Vidana rituals were, you may say, the poor man's version, in a sense, of the Shrauta ritual, lacking the elaboration, but essentially directed at the same set of deities and using the same type of mantras, that is mantras drawn from the Samhitas in the ritual, though somewhat differently deployed than in the Shrauta ritual. But in the late Vaidika period, we do see the emergence of a very distinct form of worship, which is image worship. Image worship is treated in many distinct ways in the different Vaidika traditions. In the Rigvedic tradition, which is represented in the Ashwalayana Kalpa Sutras, we find a relatively cursory treatment of image worship. It assumes the existence of a temple somewhere, which is called a Chaitya. And the ritualist performs something known as a Chaitya Yaga or the worship for the deity of the Chaitya. Relatively few instructions are given for this, but it's like a Grihya Homa, in which you set up a fire at home in a Sthandila or your Grihya, regular Grihya fire, and you make oblations to the deity whom you wish to propitiate in the Chaitya or the temple in that household fire. Then you wrap offerings for the deity in a leaf and send a messenger to deliver it to the temple. The Ashulayana tradition assumes that this temple may have been quite far away because it includes instructions such as giving a boat for the messenger to, uh, to uh, go across rivers, giving him a sword to defend himself against attackers and the like. In the Yajurvedic traditions and the Atharvana traditions, we find image worship being treated in a slightly different way. Now, in the Taittiriyaka stream of the Yajurveda, especially the Bodhayana tradition, and parallelly in the Atharvana tradition, we find a collection of texts which are known as the Parishishtas, or the supplementary texts, where instructions are given for installation of idols, of certain deities or images of certain deities along with rites to bathe those deities with water and perform worship to these to these images but the most elaborate development was what was seen in a branch of the taittiriyaka tradition known as the vaikhanasa tradition and here we see the development of very specific image worship, primarily directed at Vishnu, but to a degree towards Kumara and the Kaumara deities like Shashti. So in the Vaikhanasa tradition, what they did was to compose a whole corpus of new mantras for the installation and worship of the deity Vishnu in an iconic form. These mantras were collected into what was known as the Mantra Pata. So the Yajurveda tradition 
has these texts known as mantra patas, which are distinct from the Samhita, though they may overlap in terms of their mantra content with the Samhita. They are primarily mantras which are used in household rituals or grihya rituals. But additionally, they contain certain mantras which are used for the worship of deities in an iconic context or deities for whom you may not find mantras in the Samhita, such as Skanda. This mantrapata typically has a large body of regular Vaidika mantras and a few mantras which are not found in the classic Samhitas. But the Vaikhanasas had whole prashnas incorporated into their mantrapata, which was for the iconic worship of Vishnu. And as I said to a smaller degree, even Kartikeya or Kumara. And there are reasons to believe that the worship of these two deities were spatially closely associated. For we can find the early emergence of the iconic worship of both Vishnu and Skanda in certain places in India together, that is occurring in the same place, like Mathura in northern India and Madurai in the Tamil country. So, iconic worship emerged in the late Vaidika period. This is not to say it never existed before, because uh, we do hear Zarathustra ranting against images, and he evidently is complaining against people on Apaksha, because he talks about a murti being installed by the Diva worshippers, and he wishes to uproot that murti. And likewise, we also hear from Iranian inscriptions of iconoclastic Iranian kings wanting to destroy idols of the divas. And most likely that was a reference to Iranians who were worshipping the older system with idols rather than Indians. And we do have traces of iconic worship, primitive types of icons being made by the early Greeks and most importantly by one branch of the Indo-Iranian group, the third branch who are now nearly extinct, the Kalasha, who live in the terrorist state. And once they were more extensive, but the jihad of Abad al-Rahman from Afghanistan had destroyed them. So this, these Kalasha, they do have uh, images of a primitive kind made to deities who are cognates of Indra, Vishnu, uh, Rudra, Yama and the like. So the presence of iconic worship in their myths and evidence for making of primitive icons in various branches of Indo-European suggests that iconic worship always existed and perhaps Chaitya Yaga was an integral feature of what you may call the lay religion of the Indo-Europeans. Though the specialized ritualists might not have such a dependence of, on icons, at least in the early period they were not very dependent on icons. But once the door was opened for iconic worship to become more mainstream, as we see in the Vaikhanasa Mantra Partha. It is clear that this was a system which was to dominate the rest of the Indian religion from then on. While iconic worship was most likely ancestral to the Indo-Europeans, we do have evidence that the Vestasian influence, especially from the Afro-Asiatic cultures, might have played a big role in making iconic worship very prominent. Because when we look at the earliest iconography which is available from India, we clearly see certain kinds of similarities with West Asia. Now, when I say earliest, I am talking of the Sindhu-Saraswati Valley civilization, where you see elements which are seen in later tradition, for example, polycephaly and the ethyphallic deity and the like. So, these elements are distinctively Hindu, you may say, 
but still the overall arrangement of figures around the deity, the presence of horned deities, and later closer to the Shunga period when you see a new type of iconography emerging, there are elements which again have parallels in Vestasia, such as the mystery goddess which is found in many sites throughout the Indo-Gangetic region, who has weapons projecting out from the sides of her head, which uh, also are seen in the great Vestasian goddesses. So iconographic elements might have been acquired laterally from cultures in the neighborhood, but the basic impulse for iconic worship was in all likelihood ancestrally Indo-European. Two types of icons seem to have been made. One of them were what you may call anthropomorphic or human-like representations of deities. One tendency which we see in multiple parts of the Indo-European world is polycephaly or polymelia, where you have many heads and many arms. So this again might have been a feature which went back fairly early in the Indo-European period. The other type of representation was physical but aniconic. The most common representation of this type was the phallic emblem. In India, it's known as the linga, which is primarily a representation of Rudra. While in later times, the phallic element of the linga iconography was downplayed, the earliest exemplars of Shivalingas, which we get in India, have a very clear-cut phallic iconography. The development of iconography went hand in hand with another important aspect of worship, which was to play a major role in the Tantrika religion. This was the development of certain geometric diagrams, known as mandalas, which were associated with the deity. These mandalas are encountered for the first time, again, in the late Vaidika texts which I just mentioned, the aforementioned texts such as the Parishishtas of the Atharva Veda and the Bodhayana Grihya Sutra and the Vaikhanasa tradition. The earliest of these mandalas were relatively simple, but yet they were to foreshadow key elements which were seen in later mandalas. For example, a basic square outline in which were laid distinct parts which might be associated with different deities. The directionality of space was also illustrated by these mandalas by placing deities in different quarters, especially a set of eight deities known as the Ashtadikpala, who are placed in the eight directions. Right from the inception, the mandalas had two distinct aspects. One was the division of space into sacred domains for different deities or placing deities in space. And in this aspect, it developed into what was later known as the Vastu Mandala. This mandala was central to the construction of houses, temples and even whole cities where in a square grid, different deities were placed in each of the squires. We can see through the early texts the emergence of these mandalas and then their subsequent development. So one may say that this Vastu Mandala was perhaps close to the origin of the mandala itself. The other aspect of the mandala was it as a geometric representation of the deity. And it was this aspect which was going to become very important in the later Tantrika religion, where the mandala or the yantra, as it tended to be called, was a certain representation of the deity. So you had the iconic representation, which was typically an anthropomorphic image or a phallic image. And then you had the geometric representation, which was the mandala. The mandalas are pretty distinctive in that their geometry is different from 
the geometry which you see in earlier constructions. Though the two are probably related in some way, with the mandala probably representing a later development of the earlier geometric concepts. This earlier set of geometric concepts are what we see in the Shrauta tradition. So there we have a group of texts known as the Shulba Sutras, which provide geometric specifications for the creation of the altars which are used in the Shrauta ritual. The geometry in these texts is related to the geometric specifications which we find in altar construction in Greece, suggesting that this tradition emerged very early on, at least in the common ancestral tradition of the Greeks and the Indians, or in the period when they interacted before they reached their current uh, homelands. That old geometric tradition seems to have played a major role in the religion of both Greece and India, and also the development of mathematics in a more general sense. The mandala geometry is distinct from the Shrauta geometry in that it tends to use certain types of figures much more frequently than what you encounter in the Shrauta religion. The trapezium, certain types of trapezium which are common in the Shrauta tradition, you don't encounter them in the mandala tradition. The square grids might be a common feature, on the other hand, which links both the tradition. The last development which is important from the viewpoint of the origin of the Tantrika phase of the Mantra Shastra is the emergence of this new mantra language. The mantra language of the Vaidika phase of the Mantra Shastra is an old dialect or a set of old dialects of Samskrita. The oldest of the layers of these dialects is what we encounter in the Rig Veda. A slightly younger or perhaps a parallel layer is what we see in the Atharva Veda and to a degree in the mantra portions of the Yajurveda. This language or these layers of the old language are essentially the earliest Indo-Aryan utterances which we have with us. They are related to the mantra language of the old Indo-Iranian tradition because you find similarities with the Iranian mantra language which is found in the Avesta. This is a semantic language. You can make sense of it. It has meaning. Even though some people, starting from an early mantra theorist known as Kautsa, have held the view that these mantras didn't have any semantic value. That view is completely untenable in my opinion. But still several Mimamsakas have held that view over the ages and even to this date you might encounter some Mimamsakas who hold such a Kautsa view. The mantra language, while having meaning, may not be necessarily easy to understand. In fact, the Rig Veda is a very difficult text to understand. If you know Samskrita, it doesn't mean you know the mantra language. There is much more effort required to understand the mantra language, which means that you have to first know the old Indo-European usages, the old Indo-Aryan usages, and have some knowledge of comparative linguistics, especially of the old Iranian branch, and ideally of old Greek and Latin too. But still, these are texts which have meaning. The meaning may be very cryptic, may be very difficult to decipher, but they are texts with meaning. In contrast, the new type of mantra language has a greater degree of symbolism to it and the meaning is not apparent from merely the sound values. So to give you examples of elements of this second type of mantra language, let me quote certain syllables, which some of which at least might be familiar to you all. 
So at the face, these look like meaningless utterances. While they have no meaning as words themselves, they do have a secondary semantic value or they have a meaning in the context of their ritual application. So it was these kinds of syllables or strings of sounds which came to dominate the new type of mantra language. We do see their beginnings in the Veda itself. In the Shrauta ritual is where these syllables which I just uttered are deployed. They increase in number and complexity as the Tantrika religion develops. The second aspect of this different mantra language is the use of prose mantras as opposed to metrical mantras. The Rig Veda and the Atharva Veda are dominated by what you may call metrical mantras. As I mentioned before, they are poetic expressions which may be strung together in the form of whole poems which are known as suktas. However, these later mantra expressions were closer to the Yajurvedic mantras in that they were prose expressions, usually short, and they might be interspersed with various non-semantic elements such as the syllables, some of the syllables which I just mentioned. Now, they may also be combined with certain other sounds which do have a certain semantic value but their primary function is still of a more subtle type. Some of these in, are found right in the Veda itself and you have one such mantra in the Yajurvedic tradition. The Taitiriyakas have this mantra Khatu Phatu Jahi Chindi Bhindi Handi Khatu So here the onomatopoeic word or syllable phatu represents breaking of something or an explosion which is used usually in mantras which are directed against foes or for the killing of foes. Khatu similarly is related to the literal act of cutting or slicing and thus the onomatopoeia in that particular syllable constitutes an extra semantic factor in the mantra. The other aspect of the mantra language which dominates in the later period is the use of imperatives. The imperative mood is used extensively in the Veda too, but the later mantras may simply be strings of imperatives like jahi which means kill. So you may have whole sets of such uh, imperatives like the mantra which I just mentioned from the Yajurveda. You have jahi, chindi, bhindi, handi, all of which can be taken to be imperatives which mean kill, smite, chop, rend apart and the like. Then you also have mantras which emerge in the Tantrika period which might be completely non-semantic. For example, there is a mantra which is known as Om Sasrara Humphata. Now here the word Sasrara has meaning. Sahasra, thousand and Ara which means spoke. So, Sasrara meaning the thousand spoke, Humphata. But other than that word, the rest of the elements of this mantra are largely non-semantic. And on the whole, the mantra per se does not have a semantic value, but it's a combination of the onomatopoeic factors like those coming from hum and patal and the total syllable count as well as what you may call 
a visual image being created by the single word which has a semantic value sasrara all of these combine together to give you the mantra's effect so to say so it is in this re- aspect that the mantra language which developed in this period following the vaidika period came to differ from the earlier tradition as i mentioned before you see these elements emerging in the vaidika period itself and probably some of these elements are very old but what you see in the later period is that they tend to become dominant so if you were to take a shaiva tradition like the shri kula tradition the central mantra of that tradition might be completely non semantic like there is the famous mantra known as the kadi vidya of a stream of shri kula which is known as the kadi mata which may simply go like this ka a e la hrim ha sa ka ha la hrim sakala hrim so there is really no element of this which has a semantic value at the same time there were a few verse mantras which continued to be composed it is not to say that the tantrika period was entirely bereft of verse mantras a few metrical mantras were composed but you don't see whole suktas being composed it may be a single verse and usually in sim- simple meters like the simple anushtub meter that was the primary meter which was used you of course had the gayatri meter in a derived form which was also used for certain mantras so that's a mantra like ugram viram mahavishnum jvalam tham sarvatho mukham नृसिंहम भीषणम भद्रम मृत्यु मृत्यु नमाम्यहम दिस इज अ वेरी इंपॉर्टेंट मंत्रा ऑफ द वैष्णवा ट्रेडिशन एंड हियर इट इज अ वर्स मंत्रा बट इट्स अ सिंपल अनुष्ठु लाइकवाइज यू मे हैव दिस मॉडिफाइड गायत्री लाइक से अ कौमार मंत्रा तत्कुमाराय विद्महे कार्तिकेयाय धीमहि पाशुपतालियर For example we encounter this mantra Rudram Kruddashani Mukham Devanamishwaram Param Shweta Pingalam Devesham Prapadye Sharanagatah So a simple metrical mantra you again see in the Pashupata tradition Now you also have shorter mantras which have some semantic value but the primary factor in them is their repeated deployment in the form of multiple fire offerings or in the form of multiple repetitions so the role of repetitions of a mantra japa or even multiple fire offerings or multiple quenching offerings or tarpanas become important in the tantrika phase of the mantra shastra the beginnings of these again you see in the parishishthas of the atharva veda in the parishishthas of the atharva veda you encounter text which is known as the uchushma kalpa now in the uchushma kalpa for the first time you see such mantras in the shaiva tradition so you have mantras such as this kalaya karalaya namaswaha which is a mantra given to destroy your foes अमोघायनमस्वाहा 
This is a mantra to cause madness in your foes. Thus, you see the emergence of these mantras, which primarily function through multiple repetitions, either in their recitation or when they are used to make offerings. Some mantras can be longer, but they again are dominated by onomatopoeic elements. For example, in the same Uchushma Kalpa, you may encounter a mantra like this. Namakata vikata khante mathe patale vikale asaurya sau asaurya sau kritivishtaka ishtaka jinat yunyo sau galum tigalum te katam asi kata pravrte pradvisha rudra raudre na vesha ya vesha ya hana hana daha daha pacha pacha matha matha vidhvamsaya vidhvamsaya vishveshwara yogeshwara maheshwara namaste stu mamahim si hum phat namaswaha these mantras as you can see have a character which is quite distinct from even the yajurvedic prose mantras especially in the strings of imperatives and the onomatopoeic elements such mantras are also encountered in the early bauddha tradition the first bauddha mantras which are recorded within their tradition have a very similar character suggesting that this corpus of mantras which were to foreshadow the emergence of the tantrika religion was happening around the period after the emergence of the bauddha tradition one of these early bauddha texts which is rather notable is the mahamayuri vidya ragni we'll briefly consider this text because there are certain points of note which give us an idea about how the early tantrika phase of the mantra shastra may have developed firstly though this is a bauddha text we can see that it is essentially adapted astika mantras with a rather minimal bauddha patina being added to them you can find many elements of the contemporary astika mantra shastra being embedded in this text the mahamayuri vidya ragni one of the deities who is considered the primary deity of this mantra collection mahamayuri herself is an adaptation of a kaumara deity from the astika stream moreover we also see the whole set of matrikas who were to become important in the later tantrika tradition especially the shaiva tantrika tradition this text lists them thus ब्राह्मी रौद्री कौमारी वैष्णवी ऐंद्री वाराही कौबेरी वारुणी याम्या वायुव्या अग्नेयी महाकाली चेती यू फाइंड अ लिस्ट व्हिच इज क्वाइट कंपेरेबल दो नॉट आइडेंटिकल टू द लेटर मात्रिका लिस्ट एंड इन फैक्ट दिस मात्रिका लिस्ट हैज सर्टेन सिमिलैरिटीज टू द matrika list which you find in the mahabharata in the narratives concerning skanda so there are 12 of them here as opposed to the more traditional astika numbers of 7 or 8 so this matrika list could have very well been adopted from a kaumara tradition as we encounter in the mahabharata the second point of interest in this text is the mention of several temples which are present all over india which are dedicated to different deities so we hear of a temple for mahakala at varanasi a temple for vishnu at dwaraka two kaumara shrines the famous one at rohitaka and another one in the panchala country and indra shrine at vaidisha and there's yet another indra shrine which is located in rajagriha close to the modern pataliputra 
there is a shrine for Garuda mentioned at Vipula and another for uh, Brihaspati at Shravasti. There is yet another Rudra shrine known as the Maheshwara shrine in the Kirata country. Thus, all over the country, you see mentions of temples where these Astika deities are housed and they are invoked as yakshas in a sense to sort of demean them a bit in the typical Bauda fashion. Some of these temples we know from our tradition belong to sites which are still in use like the worship of Mahakala at Varanasi which implies that Rudra was being worshipped at Varanasi right from this period. Likewise, the worship of Vishnu at Dwaraka is another tradition which persists even today. And the Rohitaka shrine of Kartikeya is yet another case which, while not well known, persists to this date. So, what this tells us is that the temple religion was pretty well established and a certain sacred geography which was covering a good part of Bharata Varsha was already in place. There were specific shrines where deities belonging to the various sects or the primary deities of the sectarian traditions were being housed. So this suggests that indeed there was resonance between the development of this new type of mantra language or mantra shastra and the emergence of these chaityas or temples in different parts of the country. The third notable point is that the Mahamayuri Vidyaragni records certain mantras as being of Dravida origin or of Tamil origin. Now if you look at the mantras themselves, they, do, they are not really in Tamil. They are sort of in a vulgar Samskrita, a register of Samskrita which is not grammatical from a Paninian sense. But there are elements which might have been derived from a Dravidian language, probably Tamil. But it's more likely that most of that mantra is made to sound like Tamil or there are onomatopoeic elements which imitate Tamil. So what we see in this mantra, let me uh, give you a few examples of what the Buddha is supposed to call the Dramida Mantra Padhaha. So he has words like this. Kutti kutti kunatti tila kunja natti natti adakavatyayam varshatu devo navamasam dashamasam iti Here what you see is that these elements like kutti, kunatti, Kunja, Nati, they probably have been derived from a Dravidian language or at least they have been put there so that the mantra sounds like a Dravidian language. Again, we have uh, other elements like this. Tumbe, Sutumbe, Atte, Natte, Pranatte, Ananatte, Anamale, Varshatu, Devo, Navodakena, Sarvataha. Here, these elements like atte, natte, pranatte, ananatte, they are probably onomatopoeic elements added to the mantra so that it sounds like a Dravidian language. In the same vein, we also encounter other geographic deities or geographic entities which seem to be meant have these mantras incorporate a broad geographic horizon. For example, in the same Mahamayuri Vidya Rajni, you encounter this mantra Bale, Balkale, Matangi, Chandali, Purusha, Nichi, Nichi, Nigauri, Gandhari, Chandali, Matangi, Malini, Hili, Hili, Agati, Gati, Gauri, Gandhari, Kaushtika, Vachari, Vihari, Hili, Hili, Kunje, Swaha. So here, Gandhari, Matangi, Chandali, or Malini perhaps, all of these are meant to present a certain inclusiveness. That is, 
the validity of the mantra in the Simanta Pradeshas like Gandhara or in forest contexts where the elephant deity or the elephant associated goddess Matangi is presented or Chandali in the midst of the outcasts or those who are being excommunicated or are outside the Arya society. So the reason for including these elements has been discussed in the past by Mlecha Indologists who have thought that these represent cases of the Indo-Aryans now appropriating traditions of various non-Aryan groups. But there is really no evidence for uh, this explanation. Rather, what seems to be the case is the universality of the mantra is now being presented. The Vaidika mantras were largely the premise of the Indo-Aryas, but now as the Indo-Aryan society had expanded to include the whole subcontinent and all its diversity within it, the mantras were being presented as being applicable to all groups, which include those in the extremities, like the Tamil country in the extreme south and Gandhara in the extreme north, as well as the forest elements, such as what you see in Matangi, and the outcast elements like the Chandali. So these features which you see in the Mahamayuri Vidya Ragni are not restricted to it. In fact, they have a prominent role even in the Astika tradition. Just as I said before, much of the Mahamayuri Vidya Ragni seems to be adaptation of Astika material which has been now lost. But deities like Matangi, Uchishta Chandalini were to have an important role in the Shaiva tradition later. Then Gauri and Gandhari, of which Gauri perhaps represents the deity associated with the Himalayas and Gandhari, were also to find a place in the early Vaishnava tradition before the formalization of what was known as the classic Pancharaptrika period. In this early Vaishnava tradition, you encounter a mantra known as Vishnumaya. And there again, these deities like Gauri and Gandhari are invoked. There are two other sources which give us mantras from this early phase of the Tantrika development. One of them is the Arthashastra, the Arthashastra of Chanakya or Kautilya. Here we encounter mantras in the terminal part which are used for various magical purposes. And they have a structure similar to what we find in the Parishishtas of the Atharva Veda, like the Uchushma Kalpa and the Mahamayuri Vidya Ragni, as well as uh, the other class of texts where you encounter such mantras are the medical texts, three great medical Samhitas, like Charaka, Sushruta, the Ashtanga Hridaya, and also a somewhat less known but important early Samhita, the Kashyapa Samhita. These mantras may also be compared to the mantras which are found in a Shaiva Tantra, which is known as the Uddhamareshwara Tantra. So this Uddhamareshwara Tantra has a large body of mantras which are related to this layer of the mantra tradition, the early phase of the Tantrika tradition. So herein we see this link between what you may call the classic Shaiva Tantras and this earlier phase of the mantra tradition. So you may see this Uddhamareshwara as the bridging text wherein you can see how the developments which took place in this early mantra period now flowed into the Shaiva tradition. Another important text where you encounter these class of early Tantrika type mantras is the Shanmukha Kalpa, which is a Kaumara text of immense importance. At some later point, I might discuss the Shanmukha Kalpa because that would need a whole talk in itself. But you can find parallels between mantras of the Shanmukha Kalpa and the Mahamayuri Vidya Ragni, which is another bit of evidence that the Mahamayuri, in all likelihood, was inspired by 
a Kaumara tradition. Now, the Mahamayuri Vidyaragni covers a large number of deities of the Astika tradition. So, the name of the primary deity, Mahamayuri, was probably inspired by the Kaumara tradition. But around this focus, a larger locus of mantras were gathered from the Astika tradition. And they were given a Bauda patina by adding a few words or sentences which make them look like the statements of a Buddha. For example, these are the elements which are added. Just to give you the flow of this mantra where you can see the Bauda elements just being tagged on to the Astika elements. Here is how it goes. Hatam Visham Nihatam Visham Buddha Tejo Hatam Visham Pratyeka Buddha Tejo Hatam Visham Arhatejo Hatam Visham Anagami Tejo Hatam Visham Sakradagami Tejo Hatam Visham Srotapanna Tejo Hatam Visham Satyabadi Tejo Hatam Visham Brahmadhanda Tejo Hatam Visham Indra Vajra Tejo Hatam Visham Vishnu Chakra Tejo Hatam Visham Agni Tejo Hatam Visham Varuna Pasha Tejo Hatam Visham Asura Maya Hatam Visham Naga Vidya Hatam Visham Rudra Shula Tejo Hatam Visham Skanda Shakti Tejo Hatam Visham Mahamayuri Vidya Hatam Visham Bhumya Sankramatu Visham Swastya Yanam Bhavatu So the first part here, you can see various Bauda elements being tagged on, whereas the later part is a classic Astika element, which you find in some early Shaiva mantras which concern the worship of a deity known as Vanadurga. So, what you see here are invocations for the destruction of poison and that's because this Mahamayuri has a context where a disciple of the Buddha had been bitten by a cobra and was dying and then the Tathagata is supposed to have recited this mantra or given this mantra in order to block the effects of the poison and revive his disciple. When we put all this together, we can get a fairly good hint of the, the temporal window in which these developments happen. When we look at the Itihasas, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, we find that the primary reference to mantras which they present in their body are Vaidika mantras. So, there is a frequent reference to mantra deployments within the Itihasas. But when we examine them carefully, we know that they are referring only to Vaidika mantras. There are a few mantras which seem a little obscure. For example, Vishwamitra gives the Kshuaku brothers mantras known as Bala and Atibala. We don't know if there were some Vaidika mantras corresponding to Bala and Atibala or there was a secret tradition of mantras which have not come down to us. So there is the possibility that there were some additional mantras, but the bulk of the evidence suggests that even those additional ones were most likely of a Vaidika type, but simply those which have not come down to us. Because we do know that Vaidika tradition which has come down to us is imperfect. Then when we come to the period of the Tathagata or the historical Buddha, the Shakya Muni. We find him engaged in various mantra conflicts with Vaidika practitioners. Like there's the famous conflict which he had with Urubhilva Jatila Kashyapa on the banks of the Ganga. So there again the focus seems to be the Vaidika practice of his rivals. So till the period of the Buddha it appears that the Vaidika Mantra Shastra was dominant. However, we do get hints that there were other mantras right in that period. Because both the Buddha and his contemporary, the founder of the other Nastika Mata, Mahavira, the Jaina, 
Tirthankara mention other mantras which don't seem to map onto the Vaidika mantra tradition. So we may propose that between the Aitihasika period and the emergence of these two Nastika teachers, Mahavira and Buddha, that is Shakyamuni Buddha, there was the preliminary development of the new mantra language or the new mantra tradition. And this is what is captured in the Parishishtas of the Atharva Veda. Subsequently, by the time of the Mauryan period, when the Arthashastra was composed, these were quite firmly established. And in the Arthashastra, we also encounter the building of Chaityas or shrines. And Chaityas and shrines also figure in the hagiographies of the Tathagata and Mahavira quite prominently. The Chaitya development went hand in hand with Tantrika style mantras being developed. Then after the Arthashastra, we may probably place the Shanmukha Kalpa and the Mahamayuri Vidya Ragni. And in this period, we find that these mantras have taken hold or have become the prominent form of mantra expression. Also, the fact that they mention this broader sacred geography encompassing the whole Bharata Varsha or Jambudvipa itself. The inclusion of entities in the extremes like Gandhara and Dramida suggests that now this new mantra language was being presented as a universal element. So we may say that by the beginning of the common era, this Tantrika stream of the mantra tradition was firmly in place in the Hindu consciousness, which includes both the Astika streams and the Nastika traditions of the Buddha and Mahavira. It was this matrix which provided the foundation from which the classical Shaiva tantras made their appearance. And we may point out that the Uddhamareshwara Tantra, which is not an isolated tantra, but it actually has a tradition behind it known as the Dhamara Tantras, which present this transition in the Shaiva tradition. Between the earliest Pashupatas who were using largely Vaidika mantras to new compositions which emerged in their myths like what I mentioned, then the, uh, the Uchushma Kalpa, which was a development within the Shaiva tradition of the new type of mantras. And finally, the precursors of the mantra tradition found in the Uddhamareshwara Tantra. And the Shaiva tradition at this point was in close resonance with the parallelly developing Vaishnava tradition, which also had a similar set of mantras emerging in their midst, like the Vishnu Maya, which I mentioned. And importantly, the Kaumara tradition, which seems to have been a pioneer in such types of mantras as illustrated by their mantra material preserved in the medical Samhitas and the Shanmukha Kalpa. What we shall see next is how the classic Shaiva Tantras developed. So this is just the background. And from now on, we will be covering those Shaiva Tantras which consciously recognize themselves as Shaiva Tantras or part of a whole called the Shaiva Shastra and they organize themselves in the form of an internal classification which seems to have some real evolutionary structure to it. That is their internal classification mirrors the actual evolution of these Tantras. <laughs>